this morning as we consider the doctrine of the Holy Trinity from Lord's Day 8 of our Heidelberg Catechism, we read John chapter 14. John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. 
These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Lord's Day 8 reflecting on the Apostles' Creed, which was just set forth as that which is necessary for a Christian to believe, Lord's Day 8 asks the question, how are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption the third of God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. And then this question, 25, since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last Sunday, in our continued consideration of what the Bible teaches concerning the concept of faith, we saw that faith lays hold of something substantial. Faith, as to its activity, lays hold of something substantial. Faith is not to be defined in terms of believing what we cannot see. Faith lays hold of something substantial. Fundamentally, it lays hold of Christ and all his benefits. But when we remember that Christ reveals himself in his word, the word of the gospel, and in the written record of what he has revealed concerning himself in Holy Scripture, we were asked the question, what then is necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer given us by our Heidelberg Catechism was all things promised us in the gospel which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. That reference to our Catholic undoubted Christian faith is a reference to the Apostles' Creed, the twelve articles of which are considered the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith 
held throughout the history of the Christian church. The origin of that ancient creed, while unknown, is not the apostles. But that creed certainly sets forth apostolic doctrine. Some of those doctrines, however, have been twisted through the years, which is why we need to consider each of those articles, and they have to be unfolded correctly according to the Word of God. Luther found that necessary, as did John Calvin. And so, as written in the early years of the Great Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism will now take us as a congregation through those 12 articles from Lord's Day 9 through Lord's Day 22. So for the next few months, following my emeritation, we will have various ministers who will be unfolding for us the substance of those articles of our faith. Lord's Day 8, which we consider this morning, is really an introduction to the treatment of those 12 articles that follow. It's an introduction in the sense that it sets forth the single foundational truth for the entire Christian faith for all the doctrines of the Holy Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is basic. If we know not God as he has revealed himself, we cannot know his truth. The articles of the Apostles' Creed all unfold as the blossoms of a flower from this stem and therefore from the root of God's own revelation, I am the Lord, your God. That's why when the Catechism asks the question, how are these articles divided, the answer is into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And understanding that God has revealed himself in Scripture as the one only true God, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, for example, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Then the question follows, since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. You realize that the doctrine set before us this morning is deep. Let's remember, when, whenever God reveals himself, we stand on holy ground. The prophet Habakkuk, in prophesying of the judgments of the Holy One that would be executed on, 
all those who oppose him, also proclaimed, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so he concluded the second chapter by saying, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But the awesome glory of the Lord, which he has been pleased to reveal to us, is given us in Christ Jesus that we might delight in him who is the God of our salvation. So I take as my theme this morning, delighting in the Trinity. We consider our belief in God. Secondly, our belief in God triune. And finally, our delight in this triune God. When we make the confession of our faith, we always begin with, I believe in God. The Catechism, when it takes up the Apostles' Creed, will go immediately into the confession, I believe in God the Father, with the emphasis being on the fact that, the God, that God is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. But delighting in the Trinity begins with the confession, I believe in God. Let's understand, however, that the confession, I believe in God, is far more than to say, I believe God is. Or I believe God exists. Our delight in God can only rise out of a true faith, one by which we are united to him in Jesus Christ. That's far more than to say, I believe there is a God. The fact is, no person escapes that knowledge. There are those who deny the existence of God. There are those who say, I don't know if there is a God. The inescapable truth of God's existence is written upon the heart of every person. That's a fact. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, tells us that this is the knowledge that leaves men and women who reject him without excuse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." What then is to be said of those who convince themselves there is no God? Psalm 14 verse 1 tells us, 
confirmed by Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it's possible for a person to convince himself or herself that there is no God over against all the evidence that flows through every cell of their body. Even as it's possible for a man to convince himself that he's female and vice versa. Even though every cell in his body tells him otherwise. It's self-deception. It's holding the truth in unrighteousness. Nor can we say that we are Christians merely because we believe that God is. You remember that the Israelites, who did not question God is, but repeatedly took the glory of the invisible God and made an image of their own imagination. And because we are inclined to the same foolishness, we have to be reminded repeatedly not to form our own conceptions of God, nor think that we can worship Him whatever way we please. We are not to think of Him as one who simply exists to provide for our wants and needs. We're not to define him in human terms or consider his attributes merely in terms of what we would like him to be. To say that God is, is one thing. But who is he? What is your relationship to him? What is your calling before him? You see, all these things have to be taken into consideration and answered in the light of God's word. When you say from the heart, I believe in God, you mean something of tremendous significance to you. You mean first, that the one only true God is your God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ as the God who alone could save you. How could you know that? We ourselves could never say who or what God is. As 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 says of him, and particularly of his only begotten Son, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be power, honor, and power everlasting. If we are to know God, as the God who alone can save us, he has to approach us. He has to speak to us on our level and in language that we can understand. 
Furthermore, we need to remember that God is, while God is indeed the creator and therefore the sovereign of the universe, that doesn't define who he is. To define him by his works would make who he is dependent on what he does. Yes, he makes himself known to all. But he doesn't reveal himself in Jesus Christ by his works in creation. He reveals his eternal power and Godhead, as we heard from Romans 1. He reveals himself in his righteous judgments. But he doesn't reveal himself in creation as the one who saves his people in the gift of his only begotten Son. And therefore, he does not reveal to the world the essence of who he is, namely, the Father God, the God of relationship. That he has revealed by his holy gospel. He has revealed himself to his people from the very beginning of history in the holy gospel the word of which he himself spoke and was recorded for us in Genesis 3, verse 15, but he continued to unfold that gospel, also preserving it for us in Holy Scripture, in the infallibly written record of his gospel. Through that gospel, we know him as the God who has taken us into the fellowship of his own life, his own divine life. He has embraced us and shown us who he is and what he is like as the God in whom we delight. Our knowledge of him, therefore, is not merely a matter of intellectually understanding his gospel, but it's a knowledge as we've seen, that comes from that intimate relationship in which we stand to him. We can say of him, he is my God. He is my Savior. The one who has reconciled me unto himself, freeing me from the dominion of all my guilt and sin. And therefore to say, I believe in God, is to confess with the knowledge of faith, of a true faith, that the God whom we worship and with whom we live in a family relationship is the one only true God. We believe him when he says in Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, Jehovah. And there is none else, there is no God beside me. We know that because he has taken us into the fellowship of his own covenant life and proven what he has told us. Even by having Isaiah prophesy concerning Jehovah's raising up of Cyrus, king of Persia, to restore the children of Israel to the promised land, 
even naming Cyrus by name well over a hundred years before the man was even born. Our God is the creator of the universe, the one whom heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain. He's the everywhere present God, the Almighty, who accomplishes whatsoever he pleases. He is the one who says in Isaiah chapter 46, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. We confess with Psalm 48 verse 14, this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. But not only do we believe in God, We believe in God triune. That God is triune means two things. First, that he is one. Every person has a God. Many have more than one God. We ourselves are inclined toward idolatry. According to the old man of sin within us. So, We who belong to Jesus Christ hear with gladness the warnings of the first commandment as it's preached to us with all its implications. The idols people serve are many, chief of which is self. It's the inclination of the proud human heart to place self on the throne instead of God. We certainly live in the days warned about by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 where men are lovers of their own selves. But in the midst of all the idolatry of the world in its various forms and over against the idolatrous hearts of his sinful people, God proclaimed, Through Moses in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This one only true God, Jehovah, is to be the object of all our worship, of all our affections, of all our love. And so he issues to us the call to love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. That God is one also means that he's one in his own being. There's no conflict, no disharmony, no dissension within him. We sometimes speak about being conflicted. 
by which we talk about a conflict between our thoughts and our will, there's nothing conflicted about God. We just heard from Isaiah 46, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. And that God is one and without conflict, who always accomplishes his perfect purpose, is also tremendously comforting for us who know him as our Father for Jesus' sake. Everything is perfectly directed by him. Everything is directed for the purpose of revealing himself in all his glory to his family adopted in Christ Jesus. All things are for our sakes. But that God is triune also means that as the one only true God, he is three in person which three persons, states the Catechism, are the one, only, true, and eternal God. Yes, we have here a matter that's beyond our human comprehension. Should that surprise us? We stand on holy grounds. We should not be surprised that our human minds cannot comprehend the glory of the incomprehensible God. The questions are put to us in Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the sea, longer than the earth, and broader than the sea. But that this truth is beyond our comprehension does not mean it's beyond understanding. We can certainly understand. This truth, insofar as God has revealed himself to us in his word. And to know the Trinity is to know God as a personal God, a God of infinite beauty, a God of relationship, and therefore of amazing interest. God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. God revealed himself that way from the very beginning. When he spoke with Adam, telling him how he created the world. And how he created man and the woman out of the man. God went through the whole creation account with Adam, explaining that in the beginning, God created. But there was another person present, 
It wasn't an earthly creature. In Genesis 1, verse 2, we are told that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Creation account continues. And God said, and God called, and God created all the one only true God. But then he revealed what went into man's creation. Genesis 1, verse 26, And God said, One God, And God said, The verb is in the singular. This is the one God speaking. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now wait a minute. This is an account of something that took place prior to man's creation. Let us make man in our image. He had spoken in verse 2 of his spirit. But in John 1, verse 1, with reference to the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, We read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the same Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father and who declares his Father's glory. That same word, become flesh, is the one who said in John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. The Holy Spirit is identified in Acts 5, verse 4 as God. So within the one divine being, There are three persons, three who say I. And they are perfectly united, perfectly one. Our Belgian Confession in Article 8 speaks of them as co-eternal and co-essential. There's neither first nor last, for they are all three one in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. Our belief in the triune God is essential for our Christian faith and for our delight in God. Where men have failed to understand the importance of knowing God in truth, Satan has not failed to understand it. The focal point of the devil's first attacks upon the church's doctrine were attacks upon the truth of the Trinity. Let's not fail to see that. If the doctrine of the Trinity were merely some irrelevant and and abstract speculation of human theologians, 
there would be little reason for Satan to direct his attacks on this doctrine, would there? Satan understands the significance of this doctrine. If only he can get us to construct our own image of God, if only he can get us to look to God as just another God, who can easily be put on the shelf and discarded, if only he can get us to conceive of him as a rough ruler who will only treat us well if we do what he tells us to do, show outward obedience to the laws of his kingdom, if only Satan can obscure the revelation of God as the God of relationship, the God who sovereignly takes a people into the fellowship of his own life of relationship and fellowship and love, Satan has destroyed the Christian faith. He knows that. So already in the year 325, after decades of controversy, the church adopted the Nicene Creed, establishing the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Many years later, a more extensive creed was written and adopted by the church, a creed named after the church father Athanasius who had defended the truth of the Trinity over against the heretics of his day, those instruments of Satan. The Athanasian Creed begins this way. Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone to keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, never, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. The creed then goes on to spell out that doctrine of the Trinity, concluding with these words, He therefore that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. Is that hyperbole? An exaggeration? Doesn't that go too far? One has to believe God as triune in order to be saved? Doesn't that go too far? Not at all. Satan himself understands that. He knows that what makes Christianity distinct is exactly the identity of our God. The God who alone saves the God whom we worship, the God we serve, the God in whom we delight. 
our delight in this triune God is a delight that recognizes the profound wonder of how he has revealed himself to us. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 43, verse 11. The doctrine of the Trinity, which is God's self-revelation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not an abstract doctrine to be isolated to discussions in seminaries, let alone a teaching to be stashed on a shelf forgotten by the church. This doctrine is the very foundation of the Christian faith and life. The revelation of God as a God of relationship. Indeed, a relationship that reaches back into eternity. It's the basis of our relationship with him and therefore the basis of our motivation for living out of that relationship. The doctrine of the Trinity, the life of God himself, is the pattern for our earthly relationships as Christians. Whether in marriage and family life, or in our relationships within the church family. Yes, as the Apostles' Creed unfolds the articles of the Christian faith out of this wonderful revelation of the triune God, it divides those articles according to our experience or human observation of his wonderful work. So when we consider the, the wonder of creation, we think of God the Father. But that's only our initial comprehension of it. For the fact is, as we read in Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the word being the eternal word, the Son of God, as we saw from John 1, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, the word breath being spirit. The eternal triune God is the creator, even as we saw confirmed in Genesis 1. But we associate creation with the Father. And with whom do we connect our redemption? We think immediately of Christ, don't we? God the Son. Our minds immediately flying to the cross think upon that eternal Son of God become flesh to save us from our sins. Does that detract from the fact that the Father and the Holy Spirit are intricately and inseparably at work in that wonder of our redemption? Not at all. But we think of God the Son in our redemption. 
And when we contemplate the wonder of God's work in sanctifying us, an ongoing work, we realize that that work is of the triune God through Jesus Christ, but by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we are brought back to John 14, the chapter which we read this morning. The promise of the Savior, the eternal word of God become flesh, as recorded in verses 16 and 17, was this. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto him. Yes, God the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit applies to us all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Why do we delight in the Trinity? Because in revealing himself as the triune God, God not only, God doesn't set forth that truth of the Trinity in abstraction. He reveals himself as the living God. And life refers not merely to existence. Life is related existence. Living in relationship. We who are Reformed believers know that divine life of fellowship and love as God's covenant life. God is a life-giving God. The beauty of life flows from eternity within his own divine being, from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father in John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Notice that. God's love was expressed within that relationship, within the beauty of his own divine being among the three persons of the Holy Trinity. That was Before the foundation of the world, Jesus said. But in his own sovereign good pleasure, God determined to reveal himself as the life-giving God by taking, by giving a people life, taking them into his own family, into the fellowship of his love, and bestowing that love upon them. 
And I speak now not so much of the life that he gave Adam and Eve in creation, wonderful though that was. He determined that to serve a higher purpose. I speak of the life that he would give to a people fallen in sin. A life that would reveal the magnitude of the glory of his divine life by giving them life in Christ and taking them into the fellowship of his own life by the communion of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. He made us that we might find our rest and peace in his fellowship. So the Trinity is the very heartbeat of the Christian life. The all-glorious God has poured His love upon us and into our hearts by His Holy Spirit, Romans 5, verse 5. He has done that by opening our eyes to see Christ our Savior. Back to John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, Whatsoever I have said unto you. And now verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. But that same life-giving spirit who gives us that peace, also gives us the mind of Christ, making us like Him. John 14, verse 31, explains that mind of Christ this way. Loving the Father, He said, and as the Father gave me commandments, even so I do. You notice... He isn't doing those commandments to become a son. Rather, because as a son, he loves his father. He longs to do his father's will. As the Spirit, therefore, gives us the mind of Christ, we also delight in our Heavenly Father. And thus, by that Spirit, that self-love that once characterized me begins more and more to fall away. And I begin to love as God loves, valuing the fellowship that I enjoy as a member of His family. Do you see then how the various relationships that God has given us are but reflections of the life of the Trinity? Do you see how marriage is portrayed in Scripture as reflecting the mystery of Christ and His church in their relationship? Do you see how family life mirrors the family life of God? The triune God? And, how, and of those 
whom he has taken into his family by the adoption of grace. The glory of God as he reveals his own triune life is a glory that radiates like the sun, giving light and heat and warmth. It radiates especially at the cross. There we see the most profound revelation of the heart of the triune God embracing his people by giving his only begotten Son that the life-giving Spirit might give us a true delight of what it is to live in covenant fellowship with God as members of his family. So we worship Him. So we rejoice in Him. So we live to His glory and praise. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for revealing Thyself to us as the triune God, the God of relationship who has embraced us and taken us into thine own covenant family life. Father, strengthen our faith as we contemplate that truth and write thy word upon our hearts by thy Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.